right. Um, and as I said before, today we're gonna we're gonna begin a new series. We'll be in the, the first uh, letter of John for a little bit, um, and um, and yeah, and I think and I think um, I wanted to do this, you know, as, as we were thinking about the direction in which we want to go with the teaching and with the reflection uh, on our church. I think this is, this is important because of the season in which we're in, because I know that this has been a stressful, a hard season. Season for change and for challenge, um, and and I think uh, that that's going to continue to be the case. I think if anything, we're going to have to to start getting used to this sensation of not knowing. And I know that's that's hard to hear, and I know that's hard to understand. But I think that's kind of what's going to be the constant for the next little while. Uh, but also because um, there is some changes that there are even happening in our midst in our community. Uh, there, there are changes that are that, that are going to continue to happen as we as we change and as we grow and as we evolve as a church. Um, and in the midst of all that, really, the point of all this is that we um, uh, we 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 are rooted in, in some things. In the midst of all this change, I think it's important to root ourselves in in the things that, that we know that don't change, and the things that we know that remain. And 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 two very simple ones of those is that God is always with us, regardless of the circumstance, and that that God is love. And, and you know, and follows a season of, of newness, of, of change for many. Uh, and, and this year, of course, it feels that there's an extra layer of uncertainty and challenge and anxiety. Um, and, and in such seasons, there's a need for fresh energy and vision around, you know, essentials, if you will, around what's more, most important. One thing we always need to be asking, of course, is what does this mean for to be the church during this time? And although much has changed, there's, there's a need to be reminding ourselves that of, of what hasn't changed, and that is that God is love. So, so during this complex moment, what might help us um, in terms of, 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 of uh, reflecting on Scripture is to where in the pages of the Bible might we encounter some help. Uh, so today we're heading into the new, a new series on, on the book of, of John. Um, and we're gonna we're gonna go very methodically to it, if you will. And and, and First John is a letter that reminds us, uh, for one thing, that that much has changed and it's changing. Um, and that's just the reality. And that there's things in, in the midst of all this changing. There's things that don't change, that never change. Uh, namely, that God is love. That we see this most clearly in Jesus, and that and that in Christ we become God's love. Now, there are a couple of big, big concepts there, aren't they? Love, God. It's not easy to pin these things down, uh, partly because there's so many different conceptions and, and definitions, uh, not to mention considerably cultural confusion between us and the time of the Bible. And it's hard to know exactly what we mean when we talk about God or love. I like the way Eugene Peterson puts it in his introduction to the to the first uh, to First John, and, and he says it, it, the most the two most difficult things to get straight in life are love and God. <clears throat> More often than not, the mess people make of their lives can be traced to failure or stupidity or meanness in one or both of these areas. The basic biblical conviction is that the two subjects are intrinsic, intrinsically related. If we want to deal with God the right way, we have to learn to love the right way. If we want to learn to love the right way, we have to deal with God the right way. God and love cannot be separated. Peterson goes on to say that there's always, that always seems to be a measure of resistance in, in this idea that God is, is love, at least the way Jesus reveals it. 
Uh, interestingly enough, though, this is exactly what was happening then to the first recipients of the, of the letter of John. And I wonder if, if that resistant may still be part of us, may still encounter um, place in our habits and our practices, maybe in our denomination, maybe in our church, or in the history of Christianity as a whole. Um, you know, when we consider all the atrocities and, and, and colonialism and, and, and imperialism and, and racial injustice. Uh, so the short answer to, to why we are going to be dwelling in, in the first John in first John for a while, I will say that that we are in this moment of, of awakening, of, of wrestling and reckoning with some really big issues around us in, in the world, but as well here in our community in our church. So as we engage these reckonings, we need to keep matters of first important uh, matters that are, that are most important uh, face to us. Uh, some things that, that hasn't changed, they haven't changed, and they won't change. That is to say that God is love, that we see this more clearly in Jesus, and that in Christ we become God's love. I think we're always in need to realignment uh, with Scripture's wisdom on these things, but especially now. And not only do we need to remind ourselves of what hasn't changed, but we also need to be reminded of what needs to change within us so that it will be enable us to more fully and faithfully live into our world. So today we're going to be anchoring ourselves in, in 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 down to 4. And it says, That which from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testified to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you may also have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Write this to make our joy complete. I'm fascinated by the way the book opens. It is, it is not like other letters in scriptures, when you compare it for, for Paul's letter, for example. They usually contain specific things, like who is writing the letter, or who is being written to, or what some form of greeting, like, like grace and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. But none of that is here in, 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 in this letter. John, 1 John launches straight into chapter 1, verse 1. In comparison, this part almost reads like a, like a movie trailer or, or, or a preview. And of course, a, a preview, a movie trailer, you know, an ad, some of these things are designed to make us want to see more of the thing. They're designed to tease us a little bit and to, and to tickle our interest into, into what's to come. And the opening of the first of first John is, an immer is as immersive as tactile. Whenever the writer has borne witness to, has been encountered not just in people's heads, but in humans' bodies, with all physical senses. Whatever is being announced here, it has been held, and those who held it can't wait to tell us more. See, John begins with this whole physicality around it, that we've seen it and we've touched it and we've tasted it and we've smelled it. <clears throat> and and those things that they're telling us, that's what they want to share. And if not, I know you, but I, I know you, but I cannot wait to hear more. First, however, uh, let us let us uh, speak a little bit of, of context, so we can understand of um, what's going on here. 
Uh, it's impossible to know for sure who wrote this letter. Um, the letter doesn't have an author that is described there. Uh, church tradition attributes the writing of, of 1 John and the 2nd and the 3rd to John the Apostle, the disciple of Jesus, the son of Zebedee. Uh, there are similarities and difference, differences between 1st, 2nd, and 3rd and the Gospel of John. Um, and the similarity and the differences are, are, are broad enough that we can't for certain say who wrote it. All that we know is that it's probably written um, around the, the end of the 1st century, somewhere in Asia, in Asia Minor, uh, which is what we will call, uh, what, what today will be Turkey. So somewhere in Turkey. Um, and most likely, at least, at the very least, there was a, a church a community, a community of Christians that was formed and influenced by um, John, the, 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 apostle, the apostle John. Um, so whether we can't tell exactly who wrote this, we know that, that it, would, it was emerged in this kind of context of, of what scholars call Johannine or the thinking of, of John somewhere in, in Turkey. Now, what, what occasion, what is that brings this letter to existence also hard to, hard to be certain. But what seems to be going on is that, is that a small community of believers uh, is experiencing conflict and confusion. It seems that they're in the midst of uncertainty and that they're in the need of, to be reminded of the basics. It seems that they have been going through changes, especially in this part of the world, as, as the, the empire starts to change and as their understanding of Christianity and the difference from Judaism starts to shift. Uh, so they need to be reminded of the, the basics, to be reminded of what's most important. And John, is, and John or whoever is the, writing, the, the author of this letter, is ready to help them sort it out by taking them back to solid foundations of the faith. And so the reasons of the, the opening word becomes clear. He's drawing attention to, watch with, to, watch, to, to that which was from the beginning. There's a sense of urgency here that reverberates in a beautiful poem wrote by, by a poet, by poet named uh, Della Hick Wilson. and says, Honey, beware. There may, be ben, there may be storm comings that will shake your branches until you don't have a leaf left. But never, and I mean never, let them pull you from your roots. John opens by telling his readers that this is, this is a time to remain deeply rooted in what and whom the world came to be. The life that appeared. The eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. The first one, the incarnate one, lined infinite and always. Jesus, the Christ. God in a human body who has been experienced in our bodies, our eyes, our ears, our hands, our multi-sensory encounter which bubbles forth into proclamation. But why is this physicality important to John? Why is John so interested in reminding us and his readers of this embodied experience? And I know what you're probably thinking. You're probably thinking that just about now seems like a perfect place to, to include a quote from Dostoevsky. So here it is, from Brothers Karamazov, from Brothers Karamazov, it says, he says here this, love, love all God's creation, both the whole and every grain of sand, love every leaf, every ray of light, love the animals, love the plants, love each separate thing. If you love each thing, you will perceive the mystery of God in all, and once you perceive this, you will thenceforward grow every day to a fuller understanding of it. 
until you come at last to love the whole world with a love that will then be all-embracing and universal. I think what Dostoevsky is saying is that as we learn to love the is that we learn to love the universal in loving the particular, that we grow in affection for the immaterial by loving that that which is material and tactile, which interestingly enough is something that Jesus would have said. For anyone who does not who, who does not love his brother who he has seen cannot love God who he has not seen. And this is this of course is the drumbeat that we hear often in John's first letter. Why? Because there were some, some among the people that John is writing to who wanted to deny the physical realm altogether. And along with it, along with the physical realm, they wanted to deny the notion of an incarnate God. See, the thing is, this embodied Christianity is not Christianity at all. This is something the whole scripture declares unequivocally. You know what? There's no way around it. There's the, but even though it's so plain, it's something that we need to be continually reminded of. Particularly in a time where it's easier, it's difficult to remain embodied. Disembodied theology leads to disembodied thinking, which leads to disembodied practice. So faith centered on the world of life can't just sit in our, in our heads, in our Bible studies, in our services, in our masses, in our discussion groups. It has to become tangible. One of my favorite quotes that I've read recently is, is from, from an American guy called Cornel West, and he, who said, justice is what love, what love looks like in public. And I just love that. And I also love what, what, what Rich Velotas uh, said in a tweet not long ago that I came across, and he said, for far too many, justice is seen as an optional supplement to evangelism and mission. But we need to seriously consider justice as one of the means of evangelism. Many of this generation could care less about our good news if it's not good news leading to a more just world. Why is this important? Because our faith is not primarily a belief system, but a practice. It is a way of being centered on Jesus. And Jesus didn't call his three disciples and tell them, think about me, or discuss about me, or even write about me, or reflect on me, or try to figure out exactly what the original language is trying to imply in this particular passage. No, what Jesus said was, follow me. Christian faith is something you do, you do with your whole self. The light that appeared is meant to be flashed in and through us so that physically, the life of the senses embodied it becomes real in the world around us. And that's what is so important to John. But what he's really on about, as he says this, and what he's more compelled to proclaim or announce is the person of Jesus. Why? Because some of his readers are thinking it's possible to have life and fellowship with God without the embodied practice of following Jesus. See, they're thinking they've just read their Bibles enough and then they go to enough prayer gatherings and why not? That's, that's good enough. And John says now that he'll have... And, and now John will have much more to say about this as we go, uh, but we're going to leave it there for now. And as we close in the next few minutes... 
just a few, uh, I just want to uh, say a word briefly about three key words that arise from this text and are going to help us as we move forward. And the first one is eternal. What I want to do here is, is hopefully to clear the air, um, the air about, around this world that for many of us comes to, comes to be confusing. Because for many of us, the world eternal mean, comes to mean something that I don't believe the New Testament writers intended. See, there was a belief in the ancient Jewish tradition at this time that believed that the world history was divided into two periods of ages. There was the present age, and this is something that Paul refers to time and time again. There was the present age, which was full of suffering and injustice and oppression. And there was the age to come, a time where God will sort all it out and, and will set everything right and will rescue his people from the evil that they have suffered. Sadly, this word for age has often been translated as eternal or eternity, which gives us, modern readers, uh, the idea that John and other New Testament writers who refer to God's coming age were thinking of something eternal in the sense of something purely spiritual, something that didn't have anything to do with the world, the world, the world of space and time and physical matter, the here and the now. That's what people often hear when they read the, first, the phrase eternal life, from, from, from instance. Um, and this is probably the way that we just most commonly uh, understand, although mistakenly. What John has in mind here, along with Paul and Jesus himself, is the age to come, which God, <clears throat> which God not only promised, but has already arrived. N.T. Wright puts it this way. The future had burst into the present, even though the present time wasn't ready for it. The word for that future was life, life, of his, life as it was meant to be, life in its full, vibrant meaning, a life which death tried to corrupt, thwart, and killed, but a life which had overcome death itself and was now unoffered to anyone who wanted to come and take it. Life itself had, to become, had come to life had taken the form of a human being, coming into the present from God's future, coming to display God's coming age. And the name of that life in person is, of course, Jesus. See, this is what we say here in our church time and time again as we talk about the kingdom. When we talk about the kingdom, this is the reality that we're talking about, not some far-fetched future spiritual place that, that's somehow going to happen, but a reality in which we can step into now. And this is at the very heart of what John wants to say. So eternal life, according to the New Testament, is not about going to heaven when you die. Eternal life, understood biblically, is this. God's future that is burst into the present in the form of the person of a person. God's own Son, Jesus Christ. The way in which He lived, the way in which He calls us to live. Now, the second word that we'd like to talk about is, is fellowship. First John reads it this way. Life appeared, <clears throat> life appeared so that we proclaim what we have seen and heard so you may also have fellowship with us and in our fellowship with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. So fellowship is the goal, right? This thing, so the fellowship is what, what needs to happen. Now, fellowship is an interesting world as well because we have a certain idea of what fellowship might mean. What I can tell you, though, is what fellowship isn't. Fellowship cannot be reduced 
to getting together down in the basement and eating, having church juice and cookies, or, or potlucks. And I don't know if, you, if you're familiar with this, but uh, with this idea, but we, we reduce fellowship to that. We reduce fellowship to getting together and to, and to eating together and to having potlucks and to having events and we call and to having parties and we call that fellowship, we call that community. In scripture, however, the word used here in comparison is much richer than what we might call for fellowship. See, the Greek word word uses this term called koinonia, which means having in common. See, this is what we mean every time that we do the generosity liturgy, that we say that we want to be generous until it can be said that there's no needy person among us. See, this is what, what the book of Acts tells us that the life of the early church was. The books of Acts tells us in several places that they all had all things in common and that they, as they got together, they grew in number as they shared everything that they had. So here's the sense of what you want to say. <clears throat> so here's the sense of what John is telling us. That coming to know Christ, coming to, together to know Christ, will resort in koinonia, in fellowship. And that we want you all to have it as well. Communion with the Father and the Son. A mutual commitment to a common purpose. An experience mar marked by participation and union. But you know what's the irony? Sometimes those things happen over church juice and crackers, over potlucks and parties. But we cannot just assume that because we have those things, that is all that we need to do. We need to be intentional to use those spaces for fellowship, for communion, for community to arise. <clears throat> but there's another goal as well. And that is the last word for today. The word is joy. Is joy. In verse 4, uh, John says, We write this to make our joy complete. Now, if you, if you, um, if you go and look in, in, in the Bible, you're going to see probably a footnote or a different translation. Because there's two different uh, ways in which this is phrased. Some, of, some will say your joy instead of ours. Um, and, and, I, and I just want to point out that... Um, by inclinations to think ours, because John is speaking inclusively. He wants the message to people, to, he wants the message that he's claiming, his reader, he wants his, the fellowship to be shared, he wants communion to be shared, so the reason stands that the joy will also be a mutual, mutual blessing. This is how Eugene Peterson translated in the message translation. Verse 4, he says, We saw it, we heard it, and now we're telling you so that you can experience it along with us. The experience of communion with the Father and the Son, Jesus Christ, our motive for writing is simply this. We want you to enjoy this too. Your joy will double our joy. So it helps me imagine that John is writing as a pastor. He has come, uh, he has a heart that can't be totally at peace as long as there are some in his congregation who aren't experiencing the fullness of life in Jesus Christ as it's meant to be. So as we come to a close today, I want to say this. 
May we know the joy of life, of the life of Jesus in our midst. May we experience communion in the Spirit and with each other. May our eyes, our ears, our hands, our hearts be open to the God who is love, to know our belovedness in the core of our being, and maybe even in the strangest times find courage, courage and grace from our fellowship with the triumph God to embody the living faith that we received. May God bless all this week.